Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Today, we sat down with Dr. Aziz Ansari, not to be confused with the comedian, a hospitalist trained in palliative medicine. Listen as we discuss how to approach end-of-life care discussions and how we can best support patients at all phases of their life. So maybe to start, you can tell us a little bit about your background and your experience with end-of-life care. Right. So first, to start off with my background, um, I'm not to be confused with a comedian, mm-hmm. although the accolades are great. <laughs> um, please don't expect a big comedy show. Uh, <laughs> right now. I have nothing to do with a comedian. Um, actually, I am a doctor. Mm-hmm. So my background, I'm a practicing hospitalist and palliative care physician. So a hospitalist is a generally internal medicine, but also can be family practice. A physician whose um, practice it is to take care of patients who are hospitalized from the outpatient or emergency room setting. So we take care of the primary care docs patients who are hospitalized. Mm. And also, we'll talk more about this later on, but also I practice uh, palliative medicine. I graduated medical school in 2001, mm-hmm. uh, a while back, and uh, then went to residency at Loyola University Medical Center right here in two th- and graduated in 2004 in internal medicine. Mm-hmm. I went a- away for two years to be a hospitalist at Carl Hospital in uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, home of the Fighting Illini. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where I went to college. And then after two years, came back to Loyola in 2006. I started practicing palliative medicine in 2005, uh, and that allowed me to get grandfathered in. So I did not do a fellowship in palliative medicine. Mm-hmm. It was fellowships were starting around then. Mm-hmm. And I was able to take my uh, palliative care boards in 2006, mm-hmm. and then again in 2008, uh, because it was the academy boards in 2006, our, our society. And then in 2008, it became under the American Board of Internal Medicine, Okay, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, so you use the term palliative medicine mm-hmm. in your, you know, your uh, right. response. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit and, and define what palliative care is? Right. It's interesting. Whether we use palliative care or palliative medicine, it depends on who you talk to. I mm-hmm. like using palliative medicine uh, because it signifies the specialty that I'm in. Mm-hmm. If you talk to a palliative care social worker, they'll say more palliative care. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on who you talk to, but they're, uh, they are synonymous and they're interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And again, back to my experience, I have both boards in hospital medicine and palliative care, but again, my mm-hmm. palliative care or palliative medicine focuses inpatient. Okay. So how does palliative care uh, or medicine, whichever term you would like to use, um, differ from hospice care, which is another term that you mm-hmm. kind of hear with associated with end-of-life care options. Okay, so we can go into how we define yeah, yeah. palliative um, care? Yeah, uh, I, I suppose, um, I, I guess before we start there, then um, I, we can we can talk a little bit more about like the meat of like why, why we asked you on here, which is we're, we're going to be talking about dying with dignity, which as we noted is not the like, you know, most joyous of, of discussions, but um, I think a, an important topic to, to broach nonetheless. And so one of the things I think we don't often like to think too much about is, you know, in terms of healthcare and medicine is end of life. And from my understanding, palliative care deals with that. So could you talk about what are some of the options there are available for people and patients who are in their end of life? Okay, so that's a great question. So I'm going to back up Mm -hmm. and explain to the people listening what defines palliative care. Mm -hmm. 
So palliative care cannot be synonymous with death and dying. Mm -hmm. Palliative care is supportive care Mm -hmm. with an interdisciplinary approach Mm -hmm. that's in collaboration with the patient's physicians, any patient with a serious illness that encompasses pain management, symptom management like nausea, vomiting, anxiety, uh, coordination of care among the treatment team, especially in the hospital when you have so many different uh, teams coming and taking care of a very, very seriously ill patient, and ensuring that conversations are had to ensure that care is being provided that is in accordance to patients uh, and families' values and preferences. So palliative care mm-hmm. is a big spectrum that can be provided at any stage of a serious illness. Mm-hmm and can be provided together with curative and life-prolonging interventions. So that's palliative care has so many degrees of palliation that we could offer. So, for example, you have a patient that gets diagnosed with some type of cancer, and they just got diagnosed, they have a lot of symptoms, and you, as a palliative uh, care specialist or palliative medicine specialist, Mm. you are seeing the patient in conjunction with the oncologist. The oncologist is giving the chemotherapy, Mm. and so... They're trying to cure this cancer, and you're there uh, as supportive care. Mm. Then sometimes, a lot of times, the cancer treatments uh, may not be as effective. The cancer is spreading. It's now metastasized, meaning it's spread to other organs. And now you know, you're moving m- away from curative to more supportive. Mm. And maybe your intent was to cure, but now your intent is to palliate. I see. Palliate is right. to offer comfort. So it sounds like there, there is a spectrum of kind of the utility of palliative care Correct. in conjunction with more, more curative care. So it, it's where while palliative care serves a more predominantly supportive role, it does not necessarily mean that the pa- it is not always used in the, in the case where the patient is immediately terminal or, or, or will, right. you know. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is probably the biggest misconception of palliative care, that, oh, the patient and her family are not ready for a palliative. Mm. It's not a bus. Yeah. We don't go palliative. The patient, <laughs> you know, you'll hear, the patient, uh, we need to go palliative. Like, there's no bus that takes you <laughs> somewhere cool. Right. The degree of palliation can change as a t- disease trajectory goes on. Okay, so in the beginning, it may be only symptom management, and, or the symptom management gets more intricate as the disease progresses. You may not address goals of care in the same manner as you do when the disease progresses. So in the beginning, it may be simply, do you have a power of attorney? Do you have advanced directives filled out? And then as a disease progresses and we're realizing that this is not curative, that now everything is palliative, then we start having different types of discussions on you know, goals and values and preferences and uh, what is important to you at this point. Um, Okay, we're at a point where the chemotherapy is not curative, can only help symptoms. You know how you felt after that first chemo? Mm. It, was pretty, it was pretty lousy. This is going to be even more rigorous of a chemotherapy regimen. Mm. So what is important to you? And then the trade-offs and those intricate conversations that have to happen. And again, you're not imminently dying yet, mm-hmm. right? But those decisions have to be made right. to see which trajectory we're going to take yeah. our care. So care always continues. And the degree of palliation is dependent on the disease state of a serious illness. Makes sense. So I think you brought up something that I think is, is really important, and that's the whole concept of talking about this, right, mm-hmm. with the patient and kind of explaining to them what's going on and evaluating their priorities in life. So 
how do you exactly go about doing that as a physician? And when is the right time to start these discussions? So it's never to really have that conversation. You don't have to have a serious illness to discuss what you would want if a life-threatening event were to happen. Mm -hmm. That's what we call advanced directives. Mm -hmm. People can keep saying, well, it's not going to happen to me. I'm really healthy. But you don't know when calamity is going to hit. You don't know if you're going to get into a uh, a terrible car accident. So those basic conversations about advanced directives, about what to do in in situations where you're faced with a terminal condition or you're on life support, those are conversations that have to happen at the dinner table when you're young and healthy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let alone when you have a serious illness. Sure, Yeah. yeah. So it's never too early to talk about what you define as a quality of life, what is important to you, and what is not acceptable it's never too early to designate a power of attorney and yeah. make that clear. Yeah. I guess I'm, we should start having these discussions with our families, Dave. I, I mean, I actually, it's, it's funny stories. I actually did. Like um, two years ago, I was uh, at my family. I was with my primary pr- provider. Um, and one of the um, staff like handed me a, a form, um, which was, so in Washington State, we have the POST form, which is right. like um, sets advanced directives and um, uh, kind of, more, more in terms of like DNR or like uh, level of like life saving treatment. And, and just for the audience, yeah. Pulse Form is a physician order for life sustaining treatment. For yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so it, it it provides certain options. It's usually provided for like um, patients in or required for patients in nursing homes, etc. Um, but she gave me like one of those, and then like another form that's like a dementia test, and it's like. Uh, and, and I'm like drawing a clock on here. I'm like, why why am I doing this? And then I get to the bottom is like like talking about like advanced directives, like how would you like to, you know, like, you know, uh, be, be taken care of at the end of life is like, do you want life sustaining treatment? I'm like, yes, I really want that. I'm like in my <laughs> mid twenties, but I talked to my doctor about it and he, he was like, it's funny that it happened, but it is never too early to have these discussions. And yeah, to kind of broach the subject for like, you know, so that's not even palliative care. Right. Exactly. Right. That's just, yeah. That's primary care. I would say. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it got, conversation started with me and like my parents about and and not just talking about like what I I would want but also um, kind of gave them an opportunity to talk about like what you know they would want um, toward the end and it it was uncomfortable because you know it's hard to think about that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. with your loved ones but I think it's more important right and 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 I do feel better knowing what what they want right right so you took that opportunity to talk to your parents who from a statistical set might have more likelihood of something happening than you (laughs) yeah exactly one thing that you know Dave you just brought up is family members and I guess that is something that we have to consider when people are faced with terminal illnesses or just any sort of life-threatening conditions. So what happens when, you know, you want to perhaps pursue palliative care or maybe even hospice care uh, with a patient and the patient's on board but their family is not? How do you approach that? Oh, wow. <laughs> Never happens. <laughs> Never happens. No. That- before I answer that question, would it be a good time to differentiate hospice from palliative care? Oh, I yeah. think so, yes. Okay. So we spent a little bit of time talking about, in general, what palliative care means and how the degree of palliation increases. Mm-hmm. And you could still palliate in, like, radiation therapy or chemotherapy or a palliative surgery. Yeah. Sure. So palliation doesn't mean no procedure. So hospice, um, which that word gets thrown out a lot, mm-hmm. it gets confused with palliative care. It's really an insurance term, I would say, in the United States. And hospice is just a sliver of palliative care. 
but it requires a terminal diagnosis, and it requires a prognosis of less than six months. And why? To allow the Medicare hospice benefit to kick in, which is an insurance benefit, which allows a team of people to come to the home, or wherever home may be for the patient, mm-hmm. to um, offer that expertise of end-of-life care for the patient and support the family. Sure. It's not live-in support. It's a nursing coming out several times a, day, uh, a week. It's uh, chaplains. It's nursing aides, volunteers, comes, uh, social workers. So that whole team approach with a medical director supervising care. So you have to meet the requirements. So they're stringent. There's a lot of, I used to be our hospice medical director a mm-hmm. few years ago, and you have to keep up with Medicare standards. The requirements are there because it's a significant benefit. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, there is abuse of that going sure. on. But it is palliative care. Sure. And in other advanced countries, there's no separation of that benefit. Mm-hmm. So Maybe that's getting a little political, <laughs> but sure. you don't have to give up hospitalizations or invasive treatments to get the benefit that the hospice benefit gives. I see. And that becomes a big struggle. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, whereas in other countries, you would get the home team to come by, you would prevent hospitalizations, you would prevent that ER visit because you get that whole palliative care team to come to the home. In the United States, you have to have the home hospice benefit to get that robust, comprehensive, supportive care. Interesting. Yeah, that is, that is really dicey, I feel. It's very dicey. It's um, really problematic when you know this patient needs more support, but right. they want to come back to the hospital. Right. Yeah. Well, if they want to keep coming back to the hospital, then generally speaking, they can't take advantage of the Medicare hospice benefit because then you give up Part A is an Apple Medicare mm-hmm. benefit. You can't have both Medicare Part A and hospice at the same time. Wow. So that's the challenge. So you did mention that hospice is kind of an insurance, almost an insurance term. How does palliative care and insurance right. work? Do Does insurance cover palliative care? Or? So palliative care is like a specialty. So it's like going to a cardiologist. Okay. You go to a cardiologist, you go to see your palliative care doctor in the hospital. The primary team will consult cardiology, consult nephrology, and consult, consult palliative care or palliative medicine, whichever word you guys like. <laughs> So there is no palliative care home benefit. I see. You don't have that same supportive care under palliative care. Oh, I see. So no one coming to your home and... You could. People do it creatively, like through home care. Mm -hmm. There is this concept of open hospice that Medicare trialed, which is basically home palliative care, and said, well, we're going to trial open hospice where you can get the hospice benefit, but you can come back to the hospital. Interesting. Um, which is really cool, very, um, I think, good for the patient and yeah. family. Where that is right now, if that's going to be expanded or not, I, I can't speak to that. Right. I mean, yeah. I would think that it's in everyone's best interest to keep people out of the hospital. In but... Canada, they do this really well. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I know. Anyways. I, I, I did my MPH in health policy, so I like really want to dig into the weeds of the, of the like um, reimbursement models. But kind of stepping back a little yes. bit. Mm-hmm. I we, we did start talking a little bit about how you broach these topics with yes. um, patients and their families. Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious to, like, you know, walk through what that process is, like, you know, well before, you know, like terminal diagnoses or, or you know, even even beginning palliative care. Like, what does that uh, transition look like usually for, for you? Um, do you start with, like, you know, thoughts on end of life directives or do you start like on like, you know, talking about what palliative care is? So you're asking 
how we approach patients and families in the hospital. Patients, families resist. Yeah, when resist. So we'll, we'll remind me to talk about resistance because yeah. it, it drives me nuts when people talk about <laughs> resistance. I think there's a Star Wars term like resistance is futile. No, <laughs> Anyways, so it's having a conversation. Mm-hmm. When we walk into that room, there really should not be any agenda. Mm-hmm. We're getting called because we're in a clinical condorum. The clinical situation of the patient is getting worse. Maybe some conversations have been had in the outpatient setting. Maybe they haven't. Mm-hmm. But in the, I'm speaking from the inpatient setting. It's, morally, it's more that we have an acute emergent process going on, and the patient is not doing well, mm-hmm. and we need direction. Gotcha. So it's simply coming in, saying hello, and winning hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. It's not coming in with agenda. It's not letting us getting anchored by whatever biases may be thrown against us from whoever is consulting us. It's simply having an open conversation and telling the patient and family, we are the supportive care team. We're known as a palliative care team because people hear palliative, they think hospice, yeah. like you guys just did, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be fair. Mm-hmm. And you guys are highly educated yes. <laughs> and medical students. So yeah. if you made the same mistake, imagine what lay people will do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we're here to simply have a conversation and see how we can help your loved one or uh, help whatever the patient's name is. And we're simply here to have a conversation to see how we can help you. That seems pretty Who reasonable. doesn't want help? Yeah. And who doesn't want to talk? Yeah. Sure. And we seriously mean that, right? Because yeah. you can't, like, fake that. Mm-hmm. You can't fake not having an agenda. You really cannot have an agenda. Mm-hmm. That's very hard to do. Yeah, yeah I believe it, that. It, it took me, still taking me, mm-hmm. Uh, that time out that I need to take, or as I say in my implicit bias talk, cross-check my mindset uh, about not uh, coming in, I'm going to get this done. Because <laughs> when you get called by the inpatient team, they want an answer. They want a result. Yeah. They want that code status being reversed. They want that patient to be gone to hospice. You know, And I don't blame them. It's a lot of pressures on the inpatient side, and there's a lot of stress. But we have to take it step by step. We may take a little bit of time, and sometimes it takes me half an hour just to say hello. We don't know who's been in that room. We don't know how the families feel, how they may have been slighted because of implicit biases Mm -hmm. that may be seeping in. So that's how you start a conversation. That's how you introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Dr. Ansari, and this is so-and-so, and and, uh, she's our APN on the palliative care team. Here's my medical student, and we're here to have a discussion and... Our job is to see how we can best help you mm-hmm. and, and your, say, mother, for yeah. example. Mm-hmm. And do you mind if we sit down and chat and just have a conversation? What's the reception on that usually? Never fails. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, more people will say, oh, you're not talking about hospice, are you? Mm-hmm. And you say, no, absolutely not. Not at all. We're a supportive care team. Mm-hmm. We just want to sit down and chat and see how we can help you. I mean, that yeah. that seems like... A very reasonable question to ask, and I feel like people would be pretty receptive. I'd be pretty oh, receptive, absolutely. and I'm not facing help. a terminal. Yeah. Yes, please <laughs> help me with my studies currently. <laughs> but yeah, now maybe we can get back to the question of of our uh, resistance and uh, family. Resistance. Mm-hmm. So why I'm going to turn the question around? Why do you think resistance happens? I think it's because families have a really hard time letting go and thinking about their loved ones uh, passing. And just, yeah, holding on hope, I think. So perfect. That's exactly 
why we fall into the trap mm-hmm. of resistance. And resistance breeds resistance. Okay. So oftentimes we're not approaching that situation with the cultural humility. And what I mean by that is not, this is not what you may be thinking about majority to minority or minority to majority. This is across the board, regardless of anybody's background. Mm-hmm. Where is that patient and family coming from? What are, have they gone through? What have they been told? What are their values and preferences? And what is really considered futile? So if I come in with an agenda that this is futile and this is stupid and the family's not getting it or they're crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Right away we have failed. Right. Quick plug for those of you who just Google um, cultural humility in my name. Uh, there's an article we published, uh, uh, perspectives we published on this and we created a tool called the five R's of cultural humility to help develop, uh, develop a tool that help incorporate cultural humility into our practice. And essentially it's giving the patient and family the proper relevance, the proper respect, coming in with the proper reflection from our point that this is you know, very tragic for the patient and family. Mm-hmm. It may be my 1,000th consult on end-stage dementia and not able to eat. But you know what? For that patient and for that family, that's no- number one. Right. Yeah. Okay. It could be my hundredth, one thousandth consult, and I could roll my eyes and say, "Oh my God, I have another end stage dementia consult mm-hmm. to do another goals of care. Why don't they get it? It's end stage dementia. She's ninety years old, right? And that's the big risk. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And having the proper regard, so implicit biases don't come in. And then when you do all that, your own resiliency improves. Mm. Okay. That's why having an agenda backfires, mm-hmm. and we have to really rethink what we consider futility. So there, you know, we call it now non-beneficial treatment, mm-hmm. but there's some there's something called qualitative futility and quantitative. Quantitative futility is I cannot give you chemotherapy because your performance status is really poor. You're bed bound. You're in an ICU. You're on a ventilator. It's not an option. Mm-hmm. I wish I could give you chemotherapy, but I cannot because it is only going to cause harm, and I I cannot do cause harm. Sure. Qualitative futility is you have a heart failure patient come has been coming in and out of the hospital like every month gets pretty aggressive diuretics supportive care and every time gets weaker every time it's harder to get fluid off and the team is like what are we doing this mm-hmm. is crazy why don't they get it but is that really quantitative futility is there really something I'm doing that's quantitatively forbidden to do no they're yeah. coming in we get them kind of back to their baseline to discharge them. Is it qualitative? In my eyes, maybe, but maybe not in the patient's or family's eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really careful what is considered futile. And it, uh, do I think it's futile? And if it's medically futile, then why are we offering it? Right. And with good conversations, with trust and collaboration mm-hmm. and really looking into patients' values and preferences. Mm-hmm. What is important to you? I have rarely found resistance. So we have a saying, uh, you bring up resistance. Um, it's uh, palliative, it's motivational interviewing and palliative care. Okay. So you roll with the resistance. Yes. You don't argue, counter-argue. You just, for example, I want my mom to have everything done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit more what you mean by everything. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, if her heart stops, I want you to fix it. Mm. Okay. 
So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by the heart stopping. Oh, you know, what you see on TV. Okay. Is it okay if we talk about what CPR means and especially in your mom's situation? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is your ultimate goal of CPR? What are you hoping for? Hmm. Well, I don't want my mom to um, suffer and I want everything done. So everything, if you translate that, yeah. you know, the patient just, the family just gave a right. big clue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want my mom to suffer. Right. Yeah. Thinking that a CPR will prevent suffering. Right. When it breaks a lot of ribs. And yeah. It, and so, can, you know, that's where you have to listen carefully, use reflection statements, mm -hmm. and hone in on the nugget that they're giving you, that their actual goal is comfort. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So it sounds like... Um, a lot of it, some, a lot of this kind of resistance often stems from a kind of disconnect between the patient's family or the patient, and possibly like the views of the care staff or or um, what what is you know being offered or, or what their perceptions of of everything are, and the, the disconnect between um, you know the patients and, and the families and and their um, just these perceptions, right? And and so and it sounds like a lot of the the discussion happens around. Um, getting to the bottom of what they really, what their goals are. Yes, you have to break down that barrier by empathizing, by understanding, mm -hmm. being, uh, respecting their opinion, yeah. and digging deep into what's motivating this specific issue that you as a provider are claiming mm -hmm. that they're resistant. And I promise you that if you do that with experience and grace, mm -hmm that you can uncover a lot of uh, resistance. Mm. One of the examples that really dawned upon me was a patient who uh, had a mental illness. It's not really clear what it was, but he was in a home, not a group home, but a nursing facility, a mm -hmm. custodian there, custodial care. Comes in uh, as a transfer, pretty sick, and was septic, had a really bad infection. But it's pretty clear that he's not going to do well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, you know, the teams are talking to the family or the, the sisters of the patient, and the sisters are like, no, don't you dare bring up palliative care. Don't you dare do this. Mm -hmm. He's going to live, and I'm not going to talk. You know, it was got pretty heated. Mm -hmm. So after they jumble it, they called me, and I said, okay. So um, I called the uh, sister up because they wouldn't come in. And the first reaction, as you can imagine, was very stern. And I told you I don't want to talk to you. And I said, right. I'm really sorry about what was said to you earlier. I'm really here just to listen. I promise you I don't have an agenda. And I really want to try to help. You know, allow me to help you. Mm -hmm. So she thought, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't believe it. That's how sad it was. She didn't believe that's. Like somebody is actually trying to help her. Right. So I, I listened to the story, and she goes, you know, my brother, who is in his 70s maybe, I know was experimented on in the 1950s or 60s. Mm -hmm. I know he was, and it's, he's dyslexic, and he signed consents, and he doesn't know what he was signing. Mm -hmm. So I don't trust you guys. Aha. Uh -huh. Right there. Yeah. That was the resistance. They didn't trust the healthcare system because yeah. the healthcare system probably did do something to that nature. Mm -hmm. Who knows what exactly happened? But in her mindset, 
her brother was experimented on. Right. And I think we unfortunately have enough baggage in our history in the United States. To think yeah. that's true. Where, no, we not only think it is true, yeah. it did happen. Mm-hmm. You know, read the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Or the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah. Uh, so I think we have enough baggage. So I said, oh, I'm really sorry that your brother went through this. So I said, you know, we have to earn your trust and respect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a privilege. It's not a right. Mm-hmm. So I just listen. I call back, you know, a day or two later. So how are things going? Mm-hmm. So my brother's not doing well. No, he's not. He goes, I think he's going to die. I said, mm-hmm. yes, I have to agree with you. I'm really sorry. He goes, I still can't get myself to... I know he shouldn't get CPR, but I can't get myself to not do that. And for them, he did die, and he did get coded. He did get CPR. But for them, that was closure. Hmm. And for very, very few families, that closure happens if you do CPR measures on somebody. Right. Hmm. Uh, very difficult to grasp your mind around it. Yeah. When I told the teams, I go, this, they will not accept anything else, and for them, that's closure. Mm-hmm. So she was very thankful, very grateful. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was a resistance, right? So we just don't know what people have gone through. Yeah, and it seems like really having this conversation, I mean, probably has impacted her views on future healthcare providers that she encounters and perhaps giving more consideration to them, right? So because it did seem like from the story you told that she was appreciative of the fact that you reached out and you asked how you can help. So I think that's really important that we, we all do that as healthcare providers. And unfortunately, this case, implicit biases were in play because the team said, oh, that family is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's cultural. They're not going to get it. Good luck. Why are you calling me then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you won't be able to do this one. It's really... <laughs> Getting mixed messages um, here, like... Yeah, so... We have to look at ourselves. Right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what are the benefits of palliative care for the patients and their families. So the benefits are you're actually providing care that is in accordance to their values and preferences. Mm -hmm. That's a huge benefit. That's really it. You actually have a conversation. You're giving supportive care. You are uh, ensuring that we have these conversations at the right time. And you don't let things lapse. So you're always on top of uh, goal concordant care. Mm-hmm. That's the benefit. There can't really be any harm to that. The harm is when you don't ask those questions, mm-hmm. when you assume, mm-hmm. when you're not managing symptoms properly. So another thing is that there's, this is not rocket science. There's primary palliative care mm-hmm. and there's tertiary palliative care. Mm-hmm. So every one of you kids need to be good at primary palliative care. <laughs> okay, that's... Yes. Basic conversations, uh, basic uh, symptom management skills. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, those are the complex situations where you have your tertiary skills. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, I do give a talk on this, but we still haven't figured out what, that, what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. And what's primary, what's tertiary. But the messaging cannot be that, oh, palliative care, let's have them talk about code status for every single patient in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. That is uh, absolutely inappropriate. So we oftentimes will talk to our primary teams and say, did you have a conversation? No. <laughs> I said, well, you need to have a conversation first. You can do this. 
And jury's out on what primary versus tertiary means, but there's a big shortage of palliative care providers. And we cannot be at every single goals of care or every single, you know, serious illness conversation. So there's a lot of primary palliative care training that's going on. I'm uh, privileged to be uh, part of our Coleman Foundation training program in Chicago, where we've done primary palliative care training um, in a Chicago consortium, breaking the barriers of different institutions coming together. Um, So it's been a lot of fun. So we've trained APPs, advanced practice providers, MDs, social workers, chaplains. And so uh, people want to learn. People really are wanting this. Our medical students are getting more palliative care exposure Mm -hmm. earlier than uh, I would say when I was in med school. Mm -hmm. Sure. And from what you said, it seems like, I know you said you were grandfathered in, but Mm -hmm. for the palliative medicine aspect of it as a physician, there's now a fellowship, correct? Yeah, you have to do a fellowship. Although... There are plenty of people who provide even tertiary palliative care without a board certification. Mm -hmm. There are more training programs being developed for providers that just simply can't do a fellowship. There's no true board certification. But again, the point is, yes, it's a specialty, but this is one of those specialties that should be done by everybody. It's not like giving chemotherapy. I have no idea how to give chemotherapy. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Okay, so probably going out on a limb on that. Some of the palliative care peers hearing this may not like it, but we have to really reinvigorate what primary palliative care means. You all should be able to have a basic code set of discussion on how to, how to navigate that resistance, perceived resistance. Sure. I guess just to wrap things up, uh, you, you did touch on this a little bit um, about, you know, like what the kids should know. But what is something that, you know, from your perspective, like we can do better in terms of either approaching these conversations or, or kind of integrating more palliative medicine into into our care practices? I would say always advocate mm-hmm. for palliative care. Um, always ask the questions and don't be afraid of having these conversations with your, you know, senior supervisors, attendings. Mm-hmm. And always ask the question, say, hey, when you're in an outpatient clinic in primary care, you may say, hey, did we have advanced directives conversations? Or just keeping in mind that it's better to have these conversations early than when a calamity hits. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be talking about goals of care in, say, advanced dementia when they have less than six months to live. I mean, advanced dementia doesn't pop up right away. Right. So having the conversations early and advocating for your patient. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.